0: is straight to the source. Your destination for food, views and big ideas. Brought to you by two of the best in the business, Tonya Barr and Lucy Allon. Join them to discover some of Australia's most dynamic food, hospitality and agribusiness leaders.
1: Hello and welcome to Food, Views and Big Ideas. I'm Tanya Barr. And I'm Lucy Allen. And this is the podcast from us here at Straight to the Source. In this podcast, we will be introducing you to the people who are driving our food and hospitality industry forward, whether it be on the land, in the water, in the kitchen or from the boardroom.
0: Each of our guests are playing a significant role in the evolution of Australia's food identity and culture. And we want you to know who they are, their views and their big ideas. We're coming to you today from Gadigal land and we'd like to begin by paying our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. Today's guest is Glenn Dibbon,
1: longtime shellfish farmer responsible for the evolution of the Akoya from pearl
0: cultivation to food. This is such a fascinating story of innovation in developing the aquoia for culinary consumption. Glenn is part of the team at Lewin Coast which is a Western Australian aquaculture business who have spent the last six years researching and trialing sustainable techniques to cultivate and harvest aquoia for food at scale. For listeners that are hearing about aquoia for the first time,
1: they're a bivalve from the pearl oyster family, traditionally famous for producing salt, saltwater pearls, and they live naturally in the pristine waters around Albany, which if you don't know where that is, it's in the southernmost town and seaport of Western Australia.
0: What's really exciting about this is how sustainability is a core pillar of Lewin Coast's production and practices, from the way that they're growing the acoya all the way through to the way that they're sending it to market. In fact, their shellfish have been accredited carbon neutral by Climate Active, which is an Australian government initiative um, and one of the most rigorous certifications in the world.
1: For chefs, the, this is incredibly exciting. It's not often that the world is presented with a new ingredient one with no culinary reference point. So from a creative perspective, it's a blank canvas. And the
0: internal shell is beautiful. It's absolutely stunning. And the Akoya is so versatile. We've tasted it cured, raw, cooked. It's complementary to so many different flavors and it's suitable to so many different cuisines. It's really quite a unique product. Shall we get this conversation started, Lucy? Let's do it. Glenn, welcome to the Straight to the Source podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. We're very excited to have you in the studio today and to chat to you about the Akoya.
1: The whole podcast is about, you know, food views and big ideas. And and boy, this is a big idea, isn't it?
2: Definitely is. And thanks a lot for having us on. It's exciting.
0: You mentioned when we were chatting recently that, uh, first of all, you haven't done a podcast before, so we're very excited to have you on board today, but also that you've been learning a lot on this journey as well. So we'd love you to maybe take us back to the start and tell us where this Equoia project and journey started for you.
2: Mm. About 15 years ago, we started to see some dramatic changes in the environment. And these were results of um, different uh, land runoff nutrients, as well as we presume the climate change response along the coastline. So we started to see warmer water, less nutrients in the water, which support those traditional farming things we were doing, which were the mussels and the rock oysters. So we approached the government, the West Australian government, and said, look, if they really want a bio our industry within the state, they need to underpin it with a multi-species biobound hatchery, which at that time we couldn't afford to actually set up in our own right, the farmers. So to the credit of West Australian government, they did that, and it allowed us to begin exploring other species of um, bivalves that we couldn't, couldn't collect out in the wild, but we could grow. So we started exploring the oceans, in a sense. And to some extent, what you look at is the oceans are huge amounts of food sources that have been untouched. And the only reason we haven't sort of eaten them a lot of them yet is because they were very hard to commercially catch using traditional methods like boats and nets. But it does mean but once we start going down the farming process, it opens a world of opportunities. And so we explored that. We probably we started seeing the aquia. Um, there, was, there was naturally small settlements at both Albany and Coburn Sound. So we, we started looking at the Aquia first up for its use for pearl production. So, so tradi- traditionally, when you look at the aquia, it's uh, um, its history dates back to the Persians and the Egyptians some 4,000 years of recorded history. And it's mainly um, to do with pearl production, using uh, collecting the wild stocks for pearls, as well as for the shells. So they use the shells for things like buttons and for um, inlays into furniture and other things like combs and whatever all had um, pearl shell. So, inla- Glenn,
0: you were... You set up the hatchery and then you were sort of looking at, to the water for other species that you could grow. Where did you, like, was the aquoia just growing on the mussel lines or how did you come across? Yeah.
2: yeah. So there's some small-scale recruitment of the aquoia on the actual lines. So basically they'll be mixed in with the mussel lines also in, on our on our floats. Um, the acoya distribution is all the Indo-Pacific region. So it goes all the way up to Japan on, on the Pacific side as well as all the way under the Persian Gulf and the, um, and the Red Sea. So basically, it's got a really long distribution. It's mostly distributed by its temperature range. And we think it's around between, say, 13 degrees up to about 27 degrees, wherever that water in that area, this this oil will survive. And so traditionally, it came from the Egyptians and wild harvesting that we used to probably get a pearl of one in 500. Every 500 shells do end up with a pearl. You can obviously see yeah, that's not sustainable in the sense that they would have really quickly, especially because they were diving without air to collect these animals, they quickly sort of stripped the, shore, the near shore areas out. So they kept expanding outwards. Uh, history goes back to around the Sri Lanka as well, in all those shallow depth water. So the it has got a long history. It wasn't until about probably 120 years ago that the Japanese started to do it in large scale in the farming technique there, they sort of got the process of pearling um, and that's where they actually place the seed within the pearl to then get it covered, with get that um, seed covered in nacre and start producing farm pearls.
0: The the Japanese were cultivating it for pearls. Do you think they were eating it as like eating the byproduct of that production or just focusing on the pearl
2: production? We think they'd eat the abductor muscle at the end, similar to the, when you look at the so, there's a couple of pearl species. When you look at the Akoya pearl species, it, it's there's also the Maxima pearl species, which is a species we get, which is a South Sea off broom, which ends up the size of a dinner plate. And that's what produces the really big pearls out of broom. So, that's what they call the South Sea pearl. And the Akoya is it's just a, bit, a lot smaller. So, it never gets to the size of it. So, they would use just abduct the abductor muscle when they went to harvest the um, oysters at the end. Not the whole animal, like we're, we're advocating.
1: But they would so, use the shell. They would use the shell in like ornamental furniture and production yes, and that sort of thing. Okay. Definitely,
2: yeah. So basically, in the, in the in the pearl production, when you look at it, it's it's probably about two and a half years old, and they actually introduce the seed to the pearl, and then it may spend the next say two years or uh, eighteen months um, producing the nacre and actually covering the pearl. So when we look at in the food production, we're looking at it in the in the period from a probably about 12 to 18 months. We think that's the period. As it gets a lot larger than that, we, we think the flavour profile changes and it gets a lot tougher and also the meat gets a lot larger. So you can imagine at the end of the day what we're trying to do is keep it to a, a nice bite-sized piece of meat because you're eating the whole animal similar to what you would with a mussel and a rock oyster. If you had to get to the point where you cut it up with a knife and fork, I don't think that we would lose a lot and it'd be a lot tougher. So that, that's one of the, the big differences between, um, say so the rock oyster and the, mu- and mussels is rock oysters and mussels are traditionally in intertidal or in bayments along the coastline. So that makes them normally prone to say tidal influence. So that they, both of them come in and out of the water with the tides. So they've got a natural uh, mechanism in their shell that they can seal in and retain their water. And you naturally flip
1: them, don't you? Don't you naturally flip them?
2: No, not necessarily. No, they normally, because both um, muscles, especially muscles, run a visal thread. So they decide which way they want to go up. So we definitely don't flip the um, coir. So, in that sense, with the the muscles and the rock oyster, they've got a natural sealing mechanism. So they can come out of water and they can live out of water for up to two weeks and then go back into water. Akoya oysters are similar to um, scallops in the fact that they never come out of the water. So they haven't got that sealing mechanism. Yep. So they do live their whole life in the water and they, they don't come out. They, they don't come in and out with the tide like other boughs.
0: So when, when you discovered the Akoya or you, you looked at it and you thought there's an opportunity here, had you looked at other species and discarded them? What was it about the Akoya that, that took you on this journey?
2: The Akoya are unique in the fact that they run a bicell thread. So if anyone knows mussels, they call it the beard. It's a set of hairs, so they can actually put out. And most oyster species and scallop species can only use, only put those hairs out in their juvenile stages, but the Akoya actually run them for the whole of their life. So anytime they can actually run a hair out and move themselves around and also attach to each other. They're very social animals, so they love being next to each other so they end up you find them in big clumps they can move around if you put them in a basket they'll all go to one end of the basket and they'll <laughs> move around and they use their hairs to do that so that that's what makes it so farmable for us so that's what we're looking for when we farm if you looked at a traditional say a scallop and you try, and uh, current scallops that actually swim around a bit if they're not attached to any any uh, object they um if you then put them in the basket they'd end up sort of um cutting themselves and Interacting too much that they would um, sort of cut themselves in up into pieces, and it's just not viable to farm. But an animal that runs a bivalve thread like a mussel, all of a sudden changes that game. So when we started to see the characteristics of that acoya, and we'd all we'd been farming mussels for so long, all of a sudden you know the light sort of came on, and we're saying, well, it means we can grow this to the scale similar to mussels, and it's one of those species. As if there's other species out there, and we are looking, for this. The aqua really came to the top of the line early re- on.
1: Do you remember um, the your first feeling when you actually tasted it?
2: Look, it's a, it's, a, it's a unique one. Obviously, we have it, you start with it raw. And really, I was never being a shellfish farmer and growing up with mussels. Mussels are something you traditionally don't eat raw, they're normally always cook. So I was sort of brought up mostly on the mussel side of it. And that's the predominantly we were, we were farming. So, I look, raw. I've acquired a taste for it now, but in the early days, I much preferred it cooked. Right. So you know, when when the first taste, but it look be a quayus. Everyone asks us to describe what it, how it, um, and where it fits into the shellfish. Well, I sort of believe it sort of stands on its own in the sense because one of the unique things with a quayus, when you look at it compared to a rock oyster, is it's got a very large abductor muscle, and that gives it a lot more texture. So when you talk about an abductor muscle, we talk about the thing when you eat a scallop. And the white circle of flesh, that's, that's a scallop's abductor muscles. And that's, when, bi, when you talk about bio the scallop has the largest. Right. So then you see that big white thing. And then when you get down to a rock oyster, it's probably the size of a, a, the top of a pen. And then the coir sits somewhere in between. So it's sort of a blend of, you know, between a scallop or a clam or, you know, So, but the abductor muscle gives it a lot more texture.
0: So introducing a new species to the culinary world um is is what you're um doing at the moment and mm-hmm. in those conversations with introducing it to people what is the the feedback that you're getting you've obviously been on this journey for a little while now um playing around with it for what five or six years i think you said yeah. um yes. so what how how is that process of introducing a totally new product to the market
2: look after six years to believe that we've come this far in actually introducing a whole new species into the um into the food world it's just amazing how far we've got i would have never said where we sort of uh, accumulated last month in melbourne where we did we got to present to some of the best chefs in melbourne and for me that was um you know just breathtaking in what that we've come that far. And originally, in a sense, I was a good muscle farmer or five-hour farmer in the sense of that, and our marketing skills were probably the old, um, we'd give out a stubby holder at Christmas. Um, so the journey of actually seeing what we've done with the Lewin Coast and the team that we've got there is just amazing. And look, at the end of the day, I would have never believed it six years ago. And the fact that we've only, we're in a sense, only in the domestication phases of six years, we've only had five or six, you know, probably less than that. Probably about four full, full harvest. So we're learning as much on production side, and now we're getting to that, getting it in front of the chefs who are, you know, in a sense, making art of it. In a sense, so some of the stuff I've seen them do is just amazing.
1: In the cooking applications, how um, which ones stand out to you?
2: Look, that's something that's uh, in a sense when we look at the rock oyster and and if I went to say uh, probably say. 100 restaurants, and I had rock oysters. I'd probably have the rock oysters four or five different ways. I'm sort of, we're getting to the point now when every restaurant does it a different way. So at the end of the day, my thought is in a a couple of years, I'll go to 100 restaurants and we will have the aquaria 100 different ways. And look at the end of the day in presentation, taste, they're all good. I I haven't had a bad one yet. They seem to blend well, and the chefs seem to be able to do things to them that I can't believe each time. Um, I do like the things. I like them lightly steamed, and one of my favourites early on was just basically with a bit of mirin and ginger on them. That was that was mine. But look, at the end of the day, having said that, some of the stuff I've seen at Melbourne now it sort of uh, blows me away to some extent.
0: So the versatility is what I'm, you know, hearing from what you just said. And yeah. I guess um, for the culinary world, it's really a mm-hmm. first, isn't it, to have a product that doesn't have much of a culinary reference point or history. Mm-hmm. I mean, you referenced obviously that there was uh, probably some byproduct eaten by the Japanese in mm-hmm. the pearl production process, but this hasn't been used as a culinary product before. So that's really quite an amazing um, innovation mm-hmm. for the world. and. Yeah great for chefs to have something to play around with Mm. like a blank
2: canvas yes and and, and to some extent from what what we're hearing back from the chefs because it's really a journey with them now we've sort of got to this point six years we've got some production up and running and now it's really we've got to put it in front of the chefs and say okay well where's where's this aquoya got to fit in the food world and that's going to be the interesting thing we we think it's got a lot of um a lot of legs there and it's really gotta be that feedback from them. But at the end of the day, we're still on early days. Mm. It's sort of um we're only just we're just starting really, I believe.
1: And it's open to interpretation, isn't it, from a chefing mm. perspective. Like Lucy yeah. just said, it is um it is very exciting to be able to to cook with an ingredient and take it in many different ways.
2: Yeah. And look, we've put names in front of it before. We've sort of said it's it's jewelry on a plate to some extent, because if it's if the mother of the pearl, the naked inside is very presentable. Um We we have sort of told the restaurant world, all those chefs, that they're really on their menu. They need to put a little warning on there that would say, uh, you know, may contain pearl.
0: (laughs) Some (laughs) lucky person.
2: (laughs) And please return to staff. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, yes. uh,
1: So, what about the shells, though? Are mm. the shells still salvaged and used in other ways for the
2: koya? Uh, at this stage uh, this stage that's really with uh, it's early days on that side of it. At the moment we're not recollecting the shells because when we sit out to the restaurants, whether they reuse them as a um presentation source, that's something. Or whether we go down in the past, a lot of things um such as rock oysters and whatever they're they're recollecting a lot of the shells from the restaurants to use for artificial reef or and reef restoration so they can put them back into the seabed and that that shell adds as a sort of a a, a road base or a base for the reefs. Mm-hmm. Because there's, some, there's a lot of um, sort of new science coming around, things like um the fact that putting a calcium carbonate shell in there actually, um, actually attracts the juvenile larvae of the other species.
0: So it's just rebuilding so that ecosystem.
2: It's rebuilding the ecosystem, yeah. which is something we're, you know, we're, we're fairly passionate about. We're involved in that a lot of that as well.
0: So that's what I was going to ask, because the other side to all of this project is not just the innovation of, of what you're cultivating and creating, but if you look at the environment you're in, I mean, Albany is quite a unique place in its own right, but you're also very focused on the, the sustainability. sustainability and the ecosystem of the waters, aren't you?
2: hundred percent in the sense that when you look at Albany and, you, and we look at the temperature zone that we talked about for Akoya before and we sort of said that they range somewhere between, say, um, I think about, say, 13 and, say, 27 degrees um, you, you look at Albany and think it'd be fairly cold when you look at it, the sense where it sits within the Australian mainland but what happens in Western Australia we have what they call a Lewin current and that's a current that travels all the way down the coastline of Western Australia bringing warm water from the north and just at the end of that it wraps around the, the bottom end and, and puts it into Albany and so the fa- areas where we've got the farms basically uh, uh, at the bottom end of that and cast. And so that keeps the water temperature warm, which we think that adds a perfect spot for growing their coir. That's something we'll play around as time goes on, and if we, we may move it up the coastline and see how it goes in the warmer waters, it definitely will survive. It's going to be then, does it change its taste profile? They're all part of the journey to come, I think, but no. at the end of the day we've started somewhere. Um, but when you get to start talking about sustainability, um Look, that's that's one of the big factors in our company there's no two ways about it that's come from the top down that we've got to do that and so when we look at things but when you look at biovos they are they basically produce calcium carbonate in the shell so in in that sense when we look at it, when the shell is disposed of even if it's disposed in landfill it will still bind that carbon up for thousands of years right in the sense that it won't run away so let's say you put a timber Back in the in landfill, they will probably release its carbon as it rots away over the next forty or fifty years. But if you look at shellfish, um, old reefs, and one of there, there's I think the ones in Swan River are mm-hmm. uh, dated back four thousand years. The shells are still look as over the day they died. Wow! Um, so they it sort of binds that up a lot. Um, the fine we farm using the technology of um, mussel farming traditionally now for aqua. So that involves us doing this really small inferring of an anchor around 600 mils in diameter that's screwed into the seabed and basically running long lines and ropes to the surface with floats. So if we had to uh, abandon the site or we left the site, we can actually extract all our gear fairly quickly and within, you know, a couple of months, you wouldn't even know we have been there. So that's our footprint's fairly small. When you look at the... um, because we grow it on mussel, we can use the whole of the water column. So we're actually three-dimensional. If you looked at, say, a traditional, um, say, on land, you would look at only using, you know, the plant would grow to whatever height. Say a, a wheat crop would maybe grow 50 centimetres high. We can use a whole, if we're in 18 metres of water, we can use that whole 18 metres right, if yeah. we drape the ropes up and down. So our footprint compared to other species can be fairly small, but we can grow some very large volumes. Um, and
0: presumably you're creating an ecosystem in the water that other um, species can thrive in as well or live and thrive in?
2: Yeah. Yeah, so koi uh, is what they call filter feeders. So we're, they're feeding on microscopic um, plants or algae, um, and they also become habitat for a lot of other marine species, mostly in the nursery stages. So you can imagine crabs, prawns, all of that need a stage when they move from their larvae forms into what we call Into a crustacean form, so there's a huge amount of that within the system. So it is a functioning ecosystem. Um, Some of the other things is we, we as farmers, become custodians in in a sense of that water because we rely so heavily on that water being clean and pristine without any pollutants in it. Because any so that we come, it comes like a canary in the coal mine. Yeah. Um, Because and the amount of testing that we do on the water, so it's probably the most tested water in the region.
1: So once you've harvested them, what's your next step then to get, to get them to market?
2: Yeah, so that's always been a big question that the, um, that the sort of food industry asks is that, that um, what we're doing now is we're harvesting them in volume and then snap-freezing them using blast uh, blast freezers. And we're doing that because, like we discussed before, this, the aqua has no mechanism for a shelf life out of water. So as soon as we bring it out of water, it loses its fluid, unlike a mussel or a rock oyster would, and it starts deterioration process there. So look, day one, it's 100%, but day two, three, it really quickly declines. So for that sense, we bring it in, snap freeze it straight away in the shell, and then basically and do it like that. So it'll never be a, a product that you can actually bring around live.
0: And have you experimented with that process a bit? Like did you try other methods and this has been the method that you believe is the preserves the optimum freshness of the aqua?
2: Yes. Look, we've tried, we've tried various methods. At one stage we're putting rubber bands trying to hold that fluid in, but right. it just hasn't got that sealing mechanism. Mm. Um, you know, in other places of the world they've put little staples on or little clips to hold them shut, but even that doesn't, they still haven't got a sealing mechanism or a membrane inside that seals it. So, None of those things work. But look on the, on the flip side of that, environmentally, once we've frozen them, we're, we're not using any plastic in the packaging. We're just using um, cartons. So we're putting them, say, you know, fifty or depending on the size range, fifty to seventy in, in a in a box. It fits very neatly into a freezer space, and we can ship them anywhere using you know containers. So it's compared to other products, we're not fly. We don't need to fly them around like you would with rock oysters or any other than valves or crayfish. Um, so we think that, you know, that we, we see that as an advantage and it also ends up with no wastage at the mm-hmm. other end. So when chefs will bring them out of there or people want to use them, then the defrost, the defrosting process is really quick. You know, they normally bring them out within, you know, a, half an hour or sitting on the bench, they've defrosted because they're not a large animal. So I think that, you know, that outweighs some of those, those, the negativity.
0: And I suppose there's other products that that happens to, and we don't really question that. So it's really just getting to grips with this as a new product, and then understanding yes. that that's the process which holds it at its optimum mm. freshness, and you know and keeps, flavor. That flavor, keeps that flavour keeps that flavour there. So it makes a lot of sense. So what's next? Where where does the Akoya go from here? We we mentioned at the beginning, your this is quite a new journey, so it's still evolving. Yes.
2: Well, we've got it. We've got it this far in the, in regard to the production sense on the farm side of it. So it's really now the journeys with the chefs and uh, and the food industry to sort of say, okay, where does it fit in there? Um, and at the moment we've been through, we started off obviously in Western Australia and we put them put it out there and we've and had traction. And then last month we did uh Melbourne. But I think in the coming plants we're floating. Uh, and each time we're doing it, we're learning just as much as in the past. So I think I think Sydney's next and from my understanding, we're just gonna keep going from there.
1: It is wonderful, though, from a
0: culinary perspective to be on this journey with you. We're really excited to see where this product heads because it's innovation like we haven't really seen in a very long time. And the taste of place is amazing as well, you know, the taste of that remote part of Australia and a very special place with a very um, particular climate and ecosystem, so that's exciting as well.
2: Well, I think one of the interesting things that I like about the whole whole journey is that the fact that and especially when we're starting to get involved with the restaurants and whatever is the fact that sustainability has sort of become one of the pillars in their de- decision making processes yeah so basically we have to sort of make an argument and we have to say what you know why we believe should be on the menu for these reasons so it sort of gives us a we've really got to um is give all our environmental credentials just to get on the menu these days and i think that's a great a great thing um
0: yeah it's an exciting conversation because it is where we need to move our mindset you know it's about eating food that is native and has a small footprint on the world or you know no footprint on the world as you were indicating and thinking about all those points in the journey of getting to the the plate of um like you said packaging and and no waste so to have a product that is ticking all of those boxes is fantastic
2: and look at the I suppose we're in a sense we're just in the protein business in the sense that when we look at the we want to produce proteins at the best equivalent to you know food conversion ratios and, and so when you look at their Koya, we're not they really stack up in all those areas and, and no fresh water is used in the batch. when you look at some of the you know terrestrial stuff a lot of fresh water is being used and that's going to get harder and harder to, mm. to get as time goes on yeah. and so that's a that's a big part.
0: It's fascinating. And um, you must be, as you said at the beginning, you can't imagine that six years ago you would have been here. So it's going to be great to see where you and the Akoya and the, the company is in five or six years' time.
2: <laughs> My vision would be that at the end of the day, we get the Akoya off the ground. And then I suppose we look back to the ocean and we, we all, we're constantly doing that and saying, well, look, oh, it, we'll, it's for those food sources. It's just, there's things there that we haven't touched. And I, I you know, I, I love that journey. We're sort of paving the way with this one. I think at the end of the day, we can, um, you know, keep exploring. We've got to look at the different food sources in the world that are sustainable to face these next, these coming years. And I think the end point, and it's even the fact that we're getting people to change their eating habits, then that's, that's amazing.
1: Uh, real quickly, we touched on um, different sizes, but how do, how do you – are you going with small, medium, and large, or how are you identifying the, the sizes?
2: So we, we think that the, we think that the, um, the sort of – it's more of an age between, say, the 12 to 18 months. And really at that point, we're waiting on the food that, feedback now from the food industry to say, okay, what is it they want? What do they consider? You know, a lot of you – know, and we're getting mixed, mixed reports. Can, um, I,
1: can I ask you a question mm-hmm. real quick. Yep. Is there someone that you would like us to have on the Straight to the source podcast that you would like to listen
2: to or hear from? That's a sort of question without. Um, look I think at the end of the day talking to someone about the marketing and that, and, or the food industry have them in, and their perspective on the product. Mm. And I suppose at the end of the day we've had some, we have some great chefs involved and maybe that would be the, a logical step. And sort of seeing where that fits in, and yeah, and I'd love to hear their take on the environmental angles that. The, the industry's moving on, and how we, between the two of us, we work together and say, you yeah, know, they make make the environment a front and center in this whole process.
0: Well, we can't wait for the rest of the world to discover it when when it's ready to head offshore. Um, and we're certainly looking forward to watching that journey and um, seeing the evolution of the product. Thank you for joining us today. It's been really fascinating to talk to you and, and hear all about it. Thank you so much. And we look forward to having you back on. We're, we're on this journey with
1: you and we're every step of the way. And so let's see where it goes.
2: That's great. Thanks a lot for having us on. And I Thanks. think... Um, I look forward to podcast number two.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, we do too. Thank and you so thank much. You. It's nice to meet you. I look forward to meeting you in <laughs> yeah. person.
0: Face to face <laughs> in Sydney, yeah. hopefully soon.
2: Yes, no, that will be great.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Glenn. Have we a really great weekend. We really appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much for tuning
1: in with us today. We really hope you enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed the conversation. You'll find links to anything mentioned in today's chat in the show notes We have some extraordinary guests lined up, and we'd love for you to join us again. Please make sure you're following us on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss future episodes. We'd love feedback, good or bad, or perhaps a guest you'd love to hear from. Please just let us know. And the best way to stay up to date with what we're doing, who we're talking to, and where you'll find us around the country is to become part of our Straight to the Source community at straighttothesource.com.au forward slash community. Until next time.